Turkey hunting is one of my favorite things. And one of the key tools I use for turkey hunting is the Onyx Hunt Map. I use it incessantly when I'm hunting turkeys. Being able to find a new piece of public or gaining permission on private opens up opportunities for gobblers. Onyx Hunt has a special offer for you this spring. Use the code MEATEATER to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com hunt. You'll find more birds this season. I'm telling you, I rely on Onyx Hunt. When I'm hunting turkeys, it is an invaluable turkey hunting tool. Telling you what, Decked is a game changer. Decked has completely changed how I load, organize my truck. All my stuff that I want is always in there, out of my way, and secure. It's perfect. If you own a pickup truck that you use, you know, like a truck, the Decked drawer system gives you weatherproof storage for all your gear. You can lock it up, too. You keep your tools and gear organized, job site or out in the field. Go to deck.com slash meat eater to receive free shipping. Go to deck.com slash meat eater and get yourself some free shipping. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Hey everyone, this is the Meat Eater Podcast. We're recording out of Bozeman, Montana. Sunny, beautiful, very dry right now, Bozeman, Montana. I'm joined by uh, Long Tong Yanni, frequent guest, the Latvian lover, maker of Hunt to Eat t-shirts. Um, if you haven't bought one of Yanni's t-shirts, go do it now. It's the only thing he gets out of this. Also by uh, Land Tawny of Backcountry Hunters and anglers, which is a group I have, a, a conservation organization that I have admired the work of over the last few years because I find that their, their mission aligns well with, with my uh, take on conservation issues, my take on hunting and fishing and public lands, and uh, along with a handful of other conservation groups that I like a lot. They're, you know, one that I and, and try to be supportive of and encourage people to be supportive of. Um, land, like, we have a long time to talk right now, but I want you to, in super quick ways, I got two questions for you. I can't decide which one I want you to do first. First, give me your hunting and fishing background. Sure. Quickly. Nope. Two. <laughs> two. Um, explain BHA. The, the mission of BHA. You can dovetail two into one, or you can just do one, then two. I'll do one and two, but uh, making my elevator speech on number two, so it's quick. Okay. So, fifth generation Montanan. Grew up hunting and fishing. Uh, so, you, that, that's back, like... 1870s. To Custer. 1870s. Wow. Uh, first family member was born in Stevensville, Montana, 1872. You're kidding me. No. So, that was they were incorporated as a town for their, like, in 1872. My first family member was born there. You know what year Custer died? Uh, 1870 what? June 26, 1876. Okay. 
Yeah, that's wild, man. So we have a family cabin that's down the east fork of the Bitterroot down there. It's been in the family for 100 years. It's awesome. But So I grew up on the east fork uh, fishing like salmon fly hatch there, um, salmon fly hatch on the Big Hole River. Very lucky we'd spend a week down there. My father uh, knew some folks outside of Yellowstone Park on the Cinnabar Basin, and so he used to hunt elk down there. And I would, I know the Cin- yeah, I mean like Cinnabar Mountain and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, and so I would. That later became like a lot of that stuff. Some national forest, and some belongs to Cut, right? Yep, Cut yeah. bought some of that. I mean, the, and now Cut has transferred that over to the Elk Foundation, which then transferred it over to the National Forest, so yep. we can all hunt it now. What's Cut? Uh, Church Universal Triumphant. It was a cult of sorts yeah it was like an apocalyptic cult based around uh what was her name like mary prophet or something like yep. that and then her husband got busted uh running guns from idaho to montana they had big huge uh uh silos full of all sorts of stuff for armageddon yeah it was like a, it was, they were like a post-apocalyptic outfit yeah but down there i mean i grew up hunting behind my dad where he'd be hiking up these steep hills in the snow and literally i had to take you know steps in his footsteps or i would not make it because i was so small yeah and then my other favorite thing, I think, growing up was uh, duck hunting. And so we had a place south of Missoula in the Bitterroot Valley, Teller Wildlife Refuge that my dad helped set aside and uh, put conservation easements on. And when it got cold, that place was just having for ducks. I mean, they would, you know, the river freezes over and the only thing open is spring cricks. And so you just have ducks piling in there. And I remember as a kid, we'd show up and, you know, the whole, there'd be a thunderous kind of awakening of the marsh they'd take off and then they'd come back in fives and sixes and tens and just watching uh, my dad work and the dog work uh, was amazing and he'd, he'd let me bring my bb gun along and i would think i'd have a chance but uh never would happen so it's been instilled in me in a young age and then uh you know growing up i think uh i probably got away from hunting a little bit in high school just because things got crazy i was playing soccer in the fall and uh was chasing girls and then you know now catch any (laughs) some keepers (laughs) no keepers (laughs) throw them all back um uh, my wife's gonna love that and uh you know but now i mean i think you know my late like mid-20s late 20s really started getting into hunting fishing a lot more and that's where you know i my father passed away when i was 20 and so i i was out in seattle actually going to seattle university and I came home and after my dad passed away and it was like this awakening again, you know, like the outdoors and like figuring out that's what I wanted to do in conservation. And yeah. so, um, that hunting kind of brought me there. And then my dad was the, the lawyer for the Elk Foundation when they first started in 85 up in Troy, helped bring them to Missoula and was their lawyer until he passed away in 95. And he was, uh, involved in conservation easements. And so that definitely with the Elk Foundation, but also with real quick, explain conservation easements. I feel like a lot of people don't really, uh, they hear that, but they don't really know what that means. Yeah, so it's on private land. Uh, private landowner decides that they want to protect the resources on their on their private land, whether that's uh, you know the ranching culture or just the kind of wildlife habitat. So they work with a lawyer to draw up um, what the covenants for that property can be, and they could do it in perpetuity. So, like my grandfather that lives just outside of Missoula, he has about 120 acres, and they put a conservation easement on there to where he can't um, build any more houses on that land and it can't be subdivided. And so no matter what, when he, you know, he's in his uh, mid-90s right now, when he passes away and whoever that's passed on to or sold to, that conservation easement goes along with them. But they incentivize that with some tax credits. Yep, yep. So it's not, I mean, it's not just one-sided. I think the biggest thing, though, I mean, the, the tax benefits are great, but that's not what makes the deal. I think what makes the deal for people is that, you know, they... 
we all see development happen all over this country, and I think it breaks people's hearts over and over and over again. And yeah. that ability to be able to pass that on and know it's going to be there far into the future, I think, is what really sells that. Oh, for sure, man. Like if you've got a place you're in love with, and you just hate to think of it just getting trashed later on in life. Yep. And I think, you know, again, we've probably all seen places, you know, that we used to hunt or used to recreate on that are now subdivided, and, you know, you're never going to get that back. Ever. Yeah. So. What I like about those things is uh, you hear so much from opponents of conservation that anytime you set land aside, it's like, oh, yeah, it's like the government cramming it down your throat. It's like, oh, yeah, tell it to these dudes, man. Right. Do right. their own private property. Yeah, I mean, it's a private property right. You yeah. know, I mean, they have the right to do that, and nobody should tell them not to. Yeah. So, you know, um, you mentioned bitterroot, like the way the ducks come in there. Yeah. We used to, in at the end of duck season, so like December and January, when that river would start to freeze. Mm-hmm. We'd float it in canoes. Right. And just sometimes, I mean, it'd be like ridiculous, but you'd get those mornings where uh, it was super cold. And so you get so much steam coming off the river. You know, the air is so much colder than the river. Right. And like you'd pull up on them because the steam, like it was so thick, you know, and all of a sudden you'd realize that you're sort of in the midst of a, like a bunch of Canada geese heads you know, right. sitting on some gravel bar man I used to love doing that yeah it's magical but yeah I know, I know that I know Teller that's still I mean it's still called Teller Wildlife Refuge yep. my yeah. dad helped set that aside with Auto Teller and they put together about a thousand acres there in the Bitterroot it's pinched up a couple other big landowners and so it's a it's a very special place yeah yeah all right so hunting and fishing background you've been in montana your life way been back in montana all my life i went to seattle for a year and a half and uh great town but uh it's gonna be hard to take me out of this state yeah um so give me how you got into like like tell me what bha is so bha uh you know, we're a national organization we started around a campfire uh 11 years ago in oregon basically some people got together and said there wasn't an organization focused on public policy around public lands and so we're the sportsman's voice for our wild public lands, waters, and wildlife. And what that means that kind of separates us from everybody else is we're strictly advocacy and strictly advocacy on, on public lands. Uh, we There's kind of five buckets that we look at, and it's access and opportunity is the first one. And so there's a lot of different things that come into that, like the sale of public lands kind of falls under that piece. Uh, trying to get access to public lands that are isolated is another one. Well, you're talking about there, you're talking about landlocked chunks of public land. Exactly. That's the thing that... Yeah, I want to talk about all this stuff, but explain that real quick. So you have well, not, not, can, I, can I just real quick? Yeah, yeah. All right. Correct me if I'm wrong. Sure. There are big chunks of, of, of publicly owned land. Yep. BLM. I don't think any national forests. Is there any national forest? Some national forest. Where all the land around it's privately held, mm-hmm. and there's no easement to it. Right. Um, and it's open. Should be. It's available to the public. If you came in on a helicopter, you could go in there. Sure. But there's just no way to get to it. So it's like we, the people, own land that we don't have a way to get to. Yeah, it's de facto private land is what it is. Yeah. And I think so. There, you described that kind of the donut effect, which you just did. But then there's also a ton of land in Montana that's checkerboarded. So you have you know BLM, private, BLM, and it's all a checkerboard. And there's a big question of whether you can cross. Corner hop. Corner crossing, right? And so... You know, supposedly our shoulders when we cross that corner are violating airspace, and so we're trespassing. Now, if you talk to some wardens, they're not going to mess with you, but you talk to some private landowners, and they will, you know, go after you for trespassing. Oh, so we've we've always not corner hopped. It's it's a it's such much, a gray area. Yeah. So corner hop would be like let, let's say you're looking at a you're looking at a map and, and you're looking at sections. Okay. So 
I mean, it doesn't always fall that cleanly, but you have two corner sections or you have two squares of land and they, and they butt up only on the corners. Now, if you have a GPS unit or if the land's fenced and you can see the fence lines, you could theoretically have one foot in the corner of a section and then step over and place your other foot in the corner of the other section and be like, I never stepped on private land. Correct. I, I corner hopped. The argument is, in some people's eyes, is that if you did, like your body passed, like your body, even though your feet never touched, your body passed through this person's space. So there's an ongoing debate about whether you can corner hop or not. A lot of the stuff that we hunt and kind of like one of our hunting strategies in checkerboarded areas which when we're saying that, it seems like you have mixed land ownership, is to use maps to find areas of public land that have very convoluted paths into them, where maybe you're walking and you're walking on quarter sections and half sections and little weird strips of land and maybe cut into a state chunk to get to chunks of land that are not easily accessible by other mugs. Oftentimes, you'll see these big chunks of land that no mugs can get to because there's just no way into it. Right. And so you're talking about finding ways, whether it's cash or, or whatever incentives, to open those up or making the case that those should be accessible to the public. Yeah, I think the first thing is is, is willing seller, willing buyer, right? Like, yeah. I mean, nobody wants to force anybody into anything. And so, you know, using the Land and Water Conservation Fund, using easements or even fee title, you know, to get access to a certain area. I think when we look at corner crossing, that's one that I don't know if there's incentives out there. You know, we had the stream access law and the, and the bridge access that got added to that, which was definitely a help for landowners and for like the users. And maybe we could figure something like that out for corner crossing that would be beneficial to both. Uh, but that's a that's a much uh, tougher tougher thing when you think about it, just because of uh, the amounts of areas that are checkerboarded in this state. Yeah, and, and you and got others. guys, and and like you got guys who are like. Sure, it's public, but why would I want to, like, I can just treat it like my own little private area. Exactly. Why would I want to let you go on the land that I sort of claim as my own, even though I don't pay shit for taxes on it? Anyhow. I, I feel oh. like you, when you say checkerboard, too, it, it just sounds, it's like a, you use it loosely. But in Montana, especially because I hunted in Colorado for a dozen years, and there are spots that you could you know, you apply that term as well. But in Montana, literally, you can open up pages of the Gazetteer and look at it, and it looks exactly like a checker. It looks board. intentional. I mean, it's, it's just, yeah. It, and so, my question: Did you know like the history or the or like the genesis, how that came to be, where it was just so perfectly checkerboarded between private and public? A lot of that, I think, was uh, was back to like the railroads. And so when the railroads came in there, they gave them so much property, and like to actually put the railroad through Montana, they said. Here's, you know, here's an incentive for you. And so you're going to get some of this private land and then we're going to have public land, you know, so you get a certain amount. And I don't know the exact details of that, but I'm pretty sure that it was because of the railroad. And in some areas, they just went literally like public, private, public, oh, private, yeah. public. Oh, yeah, that's what it is. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right, so that's, the, that's bucket number one. So that's bucket BHA's num- bucket number one is access. Access and opportunity. The second one uh, would be backcountry conservation. And so that's like at a national level, making sure that we have public policy that protects uh, backcountry areas. So when you think about like rolled areas, um, trying to protect those places um, with, with law. Um, when you think about, uh, that's like where we work on this national legislation, like the Land and Water Conservation Fund, like just pr- 
protecting and promoting, like I guess, backcountry at a federal level. Yeah. Which is a big, huge bucket, which I could talk about a lot of things that we're doing there. But then it goes into, like, the third bucket would be kind of place-based backcountry conservation. So if you think about, you know, uh, in Colorado, it would be like Browns Canyon, Montana, the Rocky Mountain Front, Idaho, Clearwater Basin Collaborative, um, that we're working on the Clearwater Basin there. And so that's more like place-based stuff. And so you look at a watershed, let's say, and I'll take the Clearwater in Idaho. We worked with ATV users, loggers, county commissioners, other conservation organizations, and said, here's this huge landscape. How can we get a path forward that maybe not be perfect for everybody, but it's a path forward for everyone? And so in that circumstance, we've come up with a tentative agreement that has 500,000 acres of new wilderness, 200 miles of, the, of wild and scenic river, 200 miles of the longest continuous ATV route in the West, and then uh, increased timber harvest in the front country. Again, is that perfect for everybody? Probably not, but does it give certainty and a path forward? Yes. Yeah. And so this has been you know, a 10-year process. Uh, we've been engaged uh, from the very beginning. And now that's kind of moving to Senator Crapo, and there probably is going to be legislation that's introduced to actually codify that. And, and so that's that kind of play space, like really boots on the ground, kind of, you know, this is why we want to do it here. So that would be that third bucket. How, how many places would you say you're looking at in, in, in the sense that it's like been identified and it's on your radar for the place-based stuff? Um, I mean, is it had, dozens or is it? So this last, I mean, it was dozens. And then this last uh, fall, uh, the, the defense spending bill had a public lands p- package on it where about six of the places that we were working on actually got put into that bill and passed. And so uh, I'd say it's cut in half now and we're about six, seven. But we're always, I think there's a place like we're looking at the boundary waters right now. Oh, is that right? There's a proposed mine, sulfide mine in the boundary waters right now, which would, you know, obviously potentially have huge impacts. What are they wanting to go after? Sulfide. What, I don't know what the hell sulfide is. Sulfide is like, it's like a, it's a, it's a certain kind of mineral. I don't know exactly what it's used for, but it's like, a, um, it's, it's, it's pretty uh, aggressive mining, I guess what they would do. And, you know, they talk about, how the, the clean water would not be effective, but um, I don't think there's a mine that you look at, even modern mining, that doesn't affect clean water. Yeah. And so um, that's a, the Boundary Waters is a place that we're looking at trying to protect, right? And, and our members have identified because that's a place where they still have that backcountry experience. But there's a lot of protections in place in Boundary Waters too, right? There is, but this will be on like the outside of it, and so yeah. it potentially could actually affect it. Um, so I'd say you know a dozen to seven or a half a dozen to a seven or eight, but, um, you know, we're always looking at areas and, and not necessarily does that have to be protected by wilderness. You know, I think there's other ways of protection, like the Rocky mountain front right now, um, that got protected, you know, that, that had different kind of protections that kept it the way it is. And I think what we're trying to protect and promote through these place-based campaigns is that experience and that solitude and the challenge and kind of just that, that type of hunting, you know, that, that you could do, anywhere um if you protect those places and i, I mean I, when i say anywhere i mean i was just in the east and you know their backcountry looks way different than what we have here in montana in alaska it looks way different than what we have here in montana but what that binding kind of factor is is that solitude and the challenge of the hunt right and if you can protect and promote those places that's what we're trying to do so i, I wish that the kind of i know we still got buckets four and five to go but yeah. i wish that the the sort of land consciousness and the land ethic that fishermen and hunters have in the West, sort of a spatial awareness about their areas. I wish that that thinking was a little more contagious and, and spread to some areas in the East because I think there there's this idea, like where I grew up in Michigan, 
there's this idea that sort of like the the vestiges of wilderness that we have left in the upper Great Lakes, like you you, you don't really count, you, you sort of think of them as they're just there by accident. They're just there because no one's gotten around to doing something to them yet. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And people, never, I just feel like, like, when I say people, I'm generalizing, but growing up, there was no, you never, it was just not part of hunting and fishing culture to talk about, man, we love this place. What is the story up here? Mm-hmm. Like, what is going on? What exactly is protecting this place? Do we, have we taken a look at what measures we have? Could it get even better? Could we look at some areas that, that are just neglected right now and sort of, bring them into this wilderness area and extend this out. It's like you never hear those conversations. But I think that's they, I, gotta that, be... I'm sure they happen to some degree, but it's not like here. Mm-hmm. It's not like in the Rocky Mountains. But it's got to be the, just the amount of public land available. Because when I grew up hunting, I, I didn't even step foot on public land until I moved to Colorado. I grew up in Michigan. Did you hunt and trap a lot on yeah. public? Well, because I grew up right on the northern end of Manistee. Na- you know, Manistee National Forest, which, you know, it's a national forest. But at the same time, it was like just essentially no enforcement about um, ATV use, no enforcement about access. It was just like free-for-all stuff, you know. And I, it just seems like there's a much, I don't know, it just seems like people have a much stronger sense of ownership, of, of like public ownership, where you look at public lands as being not just like something you don't really understand, but you look at public lands as being like, no, it belongs to me, man. It belongs to us. And we have the right and the obligation to, as the public, monitor what's going on on these lands. And I feel like in areas where I grew up around the East, it was like that, just that, that awareness wasn't there yet. So it is good to hear that backcountry hunters and anglers, and I'm sure you're aware of this, seems like a very Western outfit. Mm-hmm. You know, it's born out of the West. It's a young group. It's like it's run out of the West. But I, I'm glad to hear that, like, to apply that, to apply your thinking to the Boundary Waters, and I would hope a whole lot of other places in the eastern U.S. Yeah, so we have a chapter in Minnesota, and that's why, you know, we're able to kind of focus there. We have a chapter now in New York and in Pennsylvania, and then a chapter that covers the six New England states. Really? I wish someone would start one in northern Michigan in the UP, man. The UP chapter. We're having a lot of talk about that. And I would say, Steve, that we've grown so fast in the last couple years, we're trying to keep up right now. And so, I mean, I think where there is opportunities and where people that we can gather together like a place like Michigan. Uh, I think we can you know, start another chapter there, but I, I will tell you that, uh, that we're trying to hold on to that horse right now and keep him on the track. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, it's, which is a great problem to have, yeah, right? Because yeah. um, if we get too big too fast, which is you know, a, kind of a good problem to have, but then you can't manage that, right? No, but, I understand. But literally just coming back from Vermont uh, last week where I met with those three kind of Eastern chapters, I mean, we're having these exact conversations. And one of the things, you know, if you look at that map, which Giannis just talked about, is that, you know, the West has way more public land than the East. But there is still these bastions of public land in the East that need that kind of stewardship, I think is what you're talking about. Um, and and not only need that stewardship, but there's also opportunities within, like, private land trusts, let's say, you know, that, that have large bodies of, of property out in the East that don't necessarily allow hunting. And so trying to work with them to open up places, you know, where it's all walk-in hunting, so you still have that challenge and kind of that experience that we're all looking for, uh, but opens up this that's private land that's, that, that becomes more public access to it. Yeah. So, um, 
but I think you know I think you're right. I mean I think that the it's inherent here in the West, and it's partly because we we still have public land, you know. I yeah. Mean, it's, that's it, and somebody tries to take that away, and that's where people get really fired up. Um, yeah, moving out here, you get I, educated on public land real quick. Yeah, I feel like no, it's a big Michigan. it's a big part of life. But I, I think that it's also I don't think it's just simply a matter of there being more public land out here. You know, it's an ethos for sure. Yeah, and then uh, another thing that, that's similar is where I grew up. We have like big navigable rivers, mm-hmm. okay, and huge navigable lakes. The minute you get on those lakes and rivers, you're on public land. Right. Doesn't matter who owns the banks, okay. Right. So you can be on there and cruise around. Um, I think that developing the mind frame of thinking of those things, like thinking of lakes, thinking of rivers as being public land you know it's just like i mean i'm not saying something concrete here i just feel that um i just encourage people that hunt and fish in the east you might be listening to this podcast in the east where i'm from to kind of like listen to the way you're talking about taking care of hunting and fishing land and realize that this isn't just a western discussion right you know, like the same way we might talk about a mountain range here, you could be talking about your river at home. Yep. Definitely. I mean, like these same sort of ideas, these same sort of sense of ownership, the same sort of like watching your own back and seeing what is happening to the places you care about, you know, and what more can you do to help the place you care about and not just have this attitude that when it goes to shit, that was just how the how stuff happens. It's how it goes. I don't know. Let's find a new place. No, I... The reason that we have what we have here in the West is because people have been stepping up for like 150 years and trying to make sure that we have that continuing. And I think, you know, that's, that can be said for pretty kind of conservation in general. But I mean, I think that there's, there's definitely that feeling from folks in the East, but they feel like they've, I think, lost a lot of that. Yeah. Um, but I think you bring up rivers and stream access is such a convoluted thing and it's so different from state to state, but it, it is a place where you can go and, uh, and experience that kind of, you know, that, that challenge. And that solitude that only like kind of rivers can. Do you have a ringer that sounds like a mallard? I do. <laughs> Before we get to uh, bu- buckets four and five, we'll take a quick break and we'll be right back. Spring is a great time to do something with your family. Do some spring cleaning, which I kind of started today outside, planning outdoor activities, which I'm always doing, taking a little trip to Hawaii with your kids for spring break, which I just did, which was great. You know what else you can do for your family this spring? You can shop for life insurance with Policy Genius. Make that part of your financial planning for the year. I've said it before a thousand times. I'll say it again. When my wife and I, when we started having kids, we got serious about life insurance. And man, I felt so much better after we did. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just 292 bucks per year for a million dollars of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Even if you already have a life insurance policy through work, it may not offer enough protection for your family's needs, and it may not follow you if you leave your job. So save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Applying for tags each year in the West can be daunting. Yeah, I apply for everything everywhere. It's daunting. You have to go to a variety of sources to formulate your best guess as to where to apply. Well, this is a thing of the past now. Onyx just launched hunt research tools 
to simplify the process for all hunters. This tool helps organize the data that matters, makes comparing hunt options easy, and helps hunters develop a plan based on real metrics rather than gut feelings. OnX Hunt also offers all elite members a free digital membership to Hunt and Fool, who I use, for boots on the ground insight and knowledge and a membership to Hunt Reminder so you never miss another deadline. Stop stressing over application season and apply with confidence in 2024. Check out OnX Hunt Research Tools, free for all OnX Hunt Elite members. Not an elite member? Well, let's fix that. Use code MEATEATER to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com slash hunt. This is an app I use literally every day. I use it for every aspect of hunting, scouting, trapping, you name it. I want to tell you about an American-made success story and Black Buffalo's award-winning nicotine pouches. Black Buffalo was built by dippers with decades of smokeless tobacco use. Black Buffalo is all about the history and tradition of dip, but they understand the convenience and discretion modern-day consumers are looking for. Black Buffalo's nicotine pouches give you the versatility to consume discreetly, but keep the ritual with flavors dippers love. Mint, straight, and wintergreen, all proudly made right here in the USA. Tell them, Chili. The reason I like black buffalo pouches is, one, they're very discreet. And what I mean by that is I can throw one in and almost forget it's there. And I prefer the mint pouches. So if you're 21 or older, consume nicotine or tobacco and want to join the black buffalo herd, head over to blackbuffalo.com to learn more. You can order nicotine pouches online. They ship directly to most states or check out their store locator to purchase pouches at thousands of retail locations around the country. Black Buffalo Tobacco Alternative. Bold flavor, full pouches. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Black Buffalo products are intended for adults age 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco. All right, so, Land, give me, just to recap now, make sure I'm paying attention. Yep. Bucket number one, access and opportunity. Yep. Bucket number two, general. How do you, how do you describe? I know bucket number three is like specific place based. So I didn't describe two as much, but it's like backcountry conservation. So I, I would put like the clear water or the clean water act. Okay. That, right. So it's like these big, huge things that happen out in DC that, Broad, affect, that are broadly applied. Exactly. Bucket number four. Bucket number hunt spots for Steve. Bucket number four, no hunting spots for Steve. <laughs> <laughs> Bucket number four would be. Uh, uh, Illegal OHV use. Yeah. And so I drove my truck here. You know, I think everybody drives, you know, somewhere sometime. But it's about that illegal use, I think, that uh, that gets our hackles up. And, you know, it's, it's about elk security. It's about um, mule deer security. It's about uh, sediment and streams when illegal stuff happens. Yeah, and it's, screw- it's like, here's, I, I want to clarify, I'm not speaking for BHA, okay, when I say what I'm going to say. Okay. Like, I'm not. This is not Land Tony talking. This is Steve <laughs> Rennell talking, who's not paid by BHA, I don't speak for BHA, all right? It's just me talking. The four-wheeler stuff is out of control in the illegal use thing in my mind. And this argument that we're going to run out of places to drive vehicles strikes me as being absurd. There are so many places to ride vehicles, and there are places to legally ride vehicles that I don't understand why any law-abiding citizen 
gets irritated, any law-abiding OHV user, which I would account myself as one of, okay, why they get irritated when they hear about curtailing illegal four-wheeler use. It is not attack on your quad runner. It's an attack on doing illegal shit. Right. It's like poaching, right? I mean, it's like if I say we shouldn't poach, why would a dude who likes to hunt but doesn't poach get pissed? But the, it seems like four-wheeler folks, and again, man, I use them, but it seems like four-wheeler folks get like mad when they hear that someone wants to start enforcing illegal use. Like it's an attack on quads. I don't think that busting poachers is an attack on hunting. I think it's helping hunting. Now Lantani will speak about actual stuff. I, that so, was not that was not Lantani talking. That was not. But I mean, I think we all share some of the same sentiment, right? I mean, I think I mean one of the reasons why illegal ATV use is a hot topic is because we've all been behind the gate, two hours hiking. It's been dark, and that ATV comes. You know, you hear that murmur, and all of a sudden there's an ATV coming up right up the trail that you just were. Dude, I approach him. Yeah, there's an area we hunt turkeys in, man. I go up to him. You know, I get up with, universally, I don't care how many signs there are saying it. I don't care how many signs they drove over. Right. It's like, so I didn't realize. Always. It's like, dude, I know you know, man. And so one of the deterrents that we're trying to, to get out there is we have a reward. So, you know, the, the penalties for illegal ATV use aren't that high. I mean, there's... They're, no, it's a joke. It's a lot of times the slap on the wrist, right? It, it, I, most guys will gladly pay right. double the fine to, you know, be able to you drive their ATV. In it's there. part of doing business, right? Like they're, and so I think, you know, we're working trying to with the state legislature, state legislature um, to try to, to increase those fines. Or, you know, and, but one of the things that we're doing is, is, is providing a reward right now. So if you get, if you see somebody that's doing something illegal when you're turkey hunting and you get like a license plate or you get like some kind of identification, able to turn that into the local but yeah it's hard to get that stuff because i've tried to get that stuff oh yeah no it's and it's and, and and that's another one that's kind of interesting is that the um that is fought is identical identification right. that you can actually see right when you when you see a boat you know out on the lake they have that identification like the sticker on it and you can see that from a long way yeah and it's color coded so you can tell if it's up to date or not exactly and so why can't you do that for atvs and so and i don't get it like i mean i'd i'd it'd be good conversation to have with you know atv users on why they won't support like you know identification um but if you actually do um some uh investigating like, you know and are able to take some pictures or whatever and turn that person in we'll give you a 500 hundred dollar reward we've given out four this year so not a lot but we get a lot of uh, play and we put sometimes we put um that in the regulation books just so people are aware of it yeah and so i think that's a deterrent and then um another thing that we're doing is uh when we do see atvs parked at the trailhead which is great right i mean they, they use that just like i took my truck we'll give them like a little thing that says thank you and then a little, uh, beer opener can opener for, that has a bha signature on it oh that's cool and so yeah. it's like we're trying you know we're doing kind of both right like i mean we're we're we're, we're i guess i would say three-legged stool we're trying to figure out better ways for enforcement in places where they probably shouldn't be and then we're trying to have something as a deterrent with that reward and again i think that's more public uh, uh outreach than it is actual on the ground and then that third piece is like thanking people for doing the right thing and um you know i mean i think that uh it's not an issue that's going to go away. It's probably going to get worse. And um, I would love to see industry step up even more and talk about this responsible use. I think you do see it. Um, it's pretty prevalent. But what is different is everybody talks about doing the right thing, but then they don't want to 
address people doing the wrong thing. Yeah. So when people are doing the wrong thing, we're not increasing fines. Like if you had your ATV taken away from you in the woods, if it was like your third offense, let's say, by being behind a gate, that's pretty. Like that's that's not your slap on the wrist anymore. That's that's a that's a big thing. And so I think no, find a guy who's three times been busted with an illegal elk. Yeah, somebody's gonna be in jail. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that's about increasing fines. I mean, I think a lot of times, you know, it gets to a judge and he's like, seriously, this is taking my time. Like, you know, I'm just going to give him. But I think awareness needs to be created. And that's partly what we're trying to do. That's our fourth bucket. The fifth one is kind of hard to define. I think it's different probably for all three of us in this room, and that's fair chase hunting. And I've heard it described that we all kind of, we all have different perspectives on fair chase, but we all know something when we see it that isn't right. And so one thing that we've jumped on is drones. And so when, you know, drones started becoming more prevalent, not just for military, but for civilian use, uh, there started to be problems up in Alaska, uh, Colorado, Montana, where folks were using drones to track animals and then go kill them. And, and so we decided to get out in front of that early. And so, um, we started working with state fishing game agencies or state legislatures to ban these for hunting and scouting. And we've gotten, we've done it in eight states now. Name the states. Um, so we've got Idaho, Montana, uh, Wyoming, Oregon, Vermont, New Hampshire, Alaska, which is seven. Um, and then I think we're working on it in Arizona right now. And I'm not sure if it's done yet. I love it because it's like Colorado, Colorado it's you. right? Yeah. 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 I love it when it's um, no. states like Alaska, Montana. Like like great hunting states, but with a very conservative minded populace mm-hmm. who um just can see that that's not good business. Right. The the drones aren't good business, you know, for the hunting world. Takes away the experience of the hunt. Because so often and, and this is something I want to talk about with you a little bit, um might be uncomfortable for you to talk about. <laughs> but it's so often enemies of conservation often try to paint um, conservation measures as being sort of like these veiled left-wing conspiracies. Do you know what I mean? That we're like talking about hunting, but what we're really talking about is like stealing your freedom, you know, or like government shoving it down your throat, right? That kind of stuff. Because it's just the way they're afraid of it and they want to beat it, right? They don't want to have like, not that they hate clean water and clean air, and good land, but just that they don't want anything to stand in the way of them doing, pursuing their own personal gains, you know? And so when you see something like the drone thing come up, it's been encouraging to see the way states that on on areas outside of conservation are very conservative states, realizing that this, like seeing that for what it is. There's not like this unwelcome intrusion of government, but just saying, you know what? That's just not for us. It's not good business. It's not good for the business of hunting. And I think, I mean, so you have drones now, but I mean, that's why hunters stepped up 100 years ago when there was market killing going on. I mean, like this is nothing new. Hunters have continued to step up. And so I think that. Yeah, it's like self, there's like a, there's a constant bit of self-policing. Yeah. And that piece that you talked about, how it's like kind of this veiled attempt by, you know, the government or this green radicals like shut things down. Like that's just a tactic that's been used again for a hundred years. And so it's, it's, I think, you know, there's these hunter conservationists which are why we have what we have today. And, and so there, there's still going to be the same arguments that happened around Roosevelt's time, but they're just new now. I mean, drones is obviously a new thing. 
Um, but uh, I've been I've been real pleased uh, with our chapters jumping on that this issue because they've they've done it. I think you know another one we're looking at right now, uh, which is high fence hunting. And, yeah. You know, I mean, I, I know how you feel about that. Uh, you know, we took care of that in Montana by making it illegal to charge for hunts. You know, they, I think there's still two that are left that are actually raising them for meat. Yeah, and that, was a, that passed by, what, 70-some percent oh, yeah. Montana? Keep, keep elk wild and free, vote for I-143. And, I mean, what a great campaign. Yeah, but it was, it was like, overwhelming. Oh, yeah. And, and I think, and so that's, like, and, you know, you talk about, you know, these hunting numbers that are going down, you know, as far as the, the populace. But this is an area where everybody understands that that's not hunting. And, you know, that's a, it's a long discussion about uh, about high fences. And But that's the, part of that fair chase thing that I'm telling you about is that that's one of our buckets that we look at. But it's really hard to define. Yeah, let me, let me I, I want to speak to that for a minute because it is complicated. And this is the one bucket you have where it doesn't make me nervous, but it, it's, to me, it's not as clear cut as some other issues. And, I, and I'll, I'll just share with you a story that I've told many times. I was one time in South Carolina hunting with a friend of mine who has a blind, a deer blind that they call the condo. Okay. He purchased some timber company land, thick, scrubby ground, and put in these long 400 yard, 500 yard long food plots that radiate out from the condo like the spokes of a wheel. The condo is at the hub. Okay. It's a big blind with rolling chairs, heaters, fridge, sliding windows, lead sleds. And they sit in the condo hunting deer. And they got the yardages marked out in each of the food plots. I'm up there hunting with them. And I'm telling him about how I'm going to go out to Arizona to hunt dry ground lions with uh, a lion hunter. And there's two kind of mountain lion hunting. There's lion hunting in the snow where the snow, the tracks in the snow indicate the size of the cat, what direction the cat was going, and usually how long ago the cat came through. There's dry ground lion hunting where you're probably not going to find a track. There's a 50% chance the dog's going to go in the wrong direction. And it's a very difficult type of hunting. I'm explaining to my buddy in the condo about what I'm going out to do. He turns his uh, swivel chair to me and says, now what is the challenge in shooting a lion out of a tree? Right? It's like your perspective on fair chase is heavily influenced by what the guys in your area do. You got guys in the South have been running deer with dogs for hundreds of years. It's a traditional use, right? It's a tr- traditional hunting use. In the North, you talk about a guy sees a dog chasing a deer, the dog gets shot. If you went and tried to put a law in in Michigan saying you could hunt deer with dogs, it would be universally despised. Okay, so there's a tremendous regionality to these issues. So when people talk about fair chase, I think we all like the idea of it, you know, but it gets really difficult to start telling people what is what and to have us all agree on certain principles. 
So even though I give it lip service, when it comes down to it, it gets to be very difficult. Like we used to like, when I was a kid, we'd like to cut a big hole in the ice to spear fish through the ice. You know? Someone not familiar with that is going to look at that practice and be like, you what? I'm like, you sit there, and when the fish comes down, you jab him with a spear. Traditional use. You know? I keep harping on this idea of traditional use because I think that one key to sorting this out is what are traditional socially acceptable practices? You know? Um, I don't know if you spent much time, but I spent time hunting in Texas. It's a very different situation that they're dealing with in Texas. You know? It just gets hard. Now, I want to say that and then let you continue on, but it's like that's one thing that I hear and I always get a little bit like, wow. Because when they were just trying to ban hunting bears with dogs in Maine, which was shot down, how were they selling it? It's not ethical to hunt bears with dogs in Maine. That was the terminology they were using. A friend of mine uh, recently sent me a paper where this guy's pushing this idea. Let's just stop. Let's just change the terminology and talk about not fair chase or ethics. We talk about fair take. You know, because the thing we get into, and again, I want to clarify, this is not Land Tony talking. This is me and I'm talking with Land. I don't represent BHA. But the thing we get into is um, the more we open up stuff and the more technology comes in to increase efficacy on the part of hunters. So all of a sudden, like, you can use drones, you have a rifle that's capable of shooting a mile, um, all this kind of stuff comes up. Hunter efficacy grows up. It becomes easier to hunt. Two things are going to happen. That you're improving the pump without improving the well. Okay? You got a bucket of water. You got a you got water and you got a pump. You're making the pump pump faster, but the tank of water don't get bigger. When that happens, as efficacy increases through technology or through other practices. You're going to do two things, shorten seasons or reduce the number of tags generally because we're talking about shooting the same, killing the same amount of stuff, right? Um, all this stuff plays into this conversation we're having about drones or any number of technologies or any number of fair chase issues. With all that said, me like teeing that up, continue the conversation, but I just wanted to like demonstrate the complexity of what we're talking about. Yeah, so I think, I've heard fair chase described one way, which I think is uh, helpful to think about, is that fair chase, like, the, it doesn't really matter to the animal, right? Like, the animal can be shot at five yards with a recurve or at a mile with a, a smart rifle, right? I mean, that animal is still dead. He doesn't really care. Or crippled. Or crippled, and yeah. E- or, and or crippled. equally plausible in either case. <laughs> yes, which is a good example, right? Um, but what it, like, when you start thinking about that fair, is it fair to the hunt and the hunter, Right, and so I think you know you're getting to that piece, like where things become easy, which I think is technology, and maybe that's just the way that uh, the world works. Is you try to do things easier and faster, but are you cheating yourself out of that hunt, right? And like yeah. what the hunt is, and I think that's a way for me to think about it. And so when you think about drones in particular, like there is nothing about fair chase and, and like and that being a hunt besides maybe being very skillful at flying your drone up in the air and finding those animals. Yeah, and being on. being like shrewd and technologically savvy. Right. Um, being good at making money. Right. <laughs> right. Um, so you have a bunch of them, you know, and I, and and so I like I think it'd be hard for for anybody to defend drones for hunting, and and that's why I think we've we've been able to. 
you know, have the success we have at this state level. Yeah, that's like a clear, that's a clear case. And it's a clear case largely because it's new, it's something new. Yep. It's something new that we're looking at, like, is this the direction we want to take this? Right. It's definable, it's new, it hasn't caught on yet. It's like the perfect thing for people to sort of get a grip on because it doesn't get into traditional practice. Yeah, another example of that was, was the one in Texas where they were allowing you to shoot animals through the internet. From your desk. From your desk. Yeah. You know, e- very easily shot down. One that's not, that's very different, is like the radio use, you know? It's like, say, Alaska to Montana or... No, I guess Montana you can't either. Alaska you can't, but right. Montana Arizona, was funny, yeah. So, Colorado you can. Yeah, like in, in Alaska, you cannot use two-way communications of any sort to assist in a hunt. Right. To, which to mean to use it to communicate like the whereabouts of game to get someone in on an animal in Arizona that's become this is a bold statement but that's become like they the de facto way to hunt multiple guys with radios talking people in the game I remember Montana banned two way communications during a hunt at all and then the next year adjusted it to be the, safety to use it up to open it up that you could use it for safety and stuff but just couldn't use it to assist right. game which seems like a very fair way to handle it. i think it's a little bit i think it's overreaching just to come in and say like you can't have two like i can't be out hunting with my kid i can't hand my kid a radio right to tell me if he's got a major problem he's dealing with right. it's different than me talk walking my kid up into an animal so he can kill just it just over that next ridge you got yeah. another hundred yards and i got good friends man like well-meaning dudes conservation-minded guys who who in arizona what they do all they do is walk people into stuff on radios you know so i think i mean partly what we're trying to do here is create this conversation that we're having right now. Yeah. Like what is fair chase to you? And like try to like define that. And again, I think it's probably different for all three of us in this room. I think it's probably very similar, but probably different when we got down talking to it. Yeah, when you get down when you get down to the when you get down to the nuts and bolts. Yeah. Um and I think the best way to discuss it is to discuss it the way we're doing where like let's sit down and talk about radials. Yeah. Let's sit down and talk about drones. Let's sit down and talk about fences. Yeah, it's important to remember that it's okay to have the discussion. Yeah. You know, so often I feel like now we're getting chastised for even like having the conversation. It's like, look, man, we're just talking about it. No you know, nobody's getting mad. Like it's okay to talk. There's two ways of looking at it. Um is or not two ways to look at it, but two ways I hear it discussed. One is that any amount of Inter- like in the hunting world, any amount of internal policing or internal talking is tantamount to playing into the hands of the antis. Right. We're all in this Dividing together. and conquering. Yeah, we're all in this together. And like, we're all in this boat together. And I said another podcast, I'm like, yeah, we're all in this boat together. So don't be chopping holes through the bottom of the boat, dude. Right. You're going to sink the boat. So lowest common denominator, is that what we really want? You know? Yeah. So it's like, th- there's that, you know, and, and, I'm, and I'm sensitive to that. And the thing that bothers me about a lot of these issues is it becomes a matter of terminology. Hunting is something I care a great deal about. I've written about it. I've dedicated my life to it. It's it's like outside of family matters, it's like the thing that matters to me, right? Um, What I've been bothered by is when people take the terminology and take the rights of hunting and apply them to things that that clearly are not. I point out this case recently. Like my brother has uh, some irrigated pasture. He keeps llamas for hunting. He likes to use llamas hunting out in the mountains. But he has a bunch of irrigated pasture. He's out of town a lot. In order to encourage his friends to come over and check on his llamas when he's out of town, he lets his friends run lambs, run sheep 
on his pasture. They come out to check on their lambs. They check on the llamas. It's this great deal. And so he's got, at any given time, I don't know, a dozen lambs. He gave me a lamb recently. I, you know, when I don't got no way to catch the lamb, we go out and just shot the lamb, okay, inside a fence. Was that an unethical thing to go and shoot livestock inside of a fence? No, no. We're harvesting livestock. We ate the lamb. It's like, that's, it's farming. Right. Farming, ranch, whatever you want to call it. Do I then apply the terminology of hunting to that and somehow try to drape that activity as hunting? It's like, that has nothing to do with hunting. You know? I didn't then go get dressed up in a camouflage suit and take a bunch of gripping grins with the lamb and act like something happened that didn't happen. Right. We were shooting hot livestock. So what bugs me a little bit is like people will act like, they, they, oh, that you think it's, it's like we're not talking about ethics when we're talking about shooting stuff, shooting livestock inside fences, but why do they insist on dressing it up as something that it's not? When guys do opt to go like kill, you know, wildlife inside fences, why are they so uncomfortable with what they're doing that they're like hiding the fence all the time? If that's what you do, I think you take your picture up against the big damn fence. You know? That's uh like why I don't understand why that own is. Own it, right? Yeah, it's like if you like doing it, do it, dude. But I again and again I've watched shows where they're hunting on high wire and they're so embarrassed about the high wire. So it's like if you're so embarrassed about the high wire, don't do it inside the high wire. What are you ashamed of? But I think it so like it gets down to that that they want to do it the easiest, fastest way, and then they'll tell the story about something else, right? Like the yeah. guy that buys the sixteen thousand dollar tag, goes and kills this big bull in Idaho goes back to wherever he came from, puts that bull on the wall. He does not tell that story that he shot it behind a fence. He tells some no. other story. And, and so, but he wants to be part of that hunting culture that, you know, I shot this big bull. And so that's why he does it that way because it's the quickest and easiest way to yeah, do like it. Yeah, like he admires the culture and he wants the acceptance, but just like isn't comfortable. Yeah, it's, and, and I don't even know where, I don't know like what we're talking about. I don't know how it ever extends into legislation and stuff, but it's just something I see and it's something that I ponder all the time. And maybe he doesn't, maybe he doesn't have the opportunity to have the experiences that you and I do, like on public land where there is that challenge, right? Like maybe he gets hooked up with somebody that's like, hey, let's go hunt the West. And this is, that's the only thing he's exposed to. And that's the only thing he knows. And so I think like that's part of, conversations like this and probably like what we're trying to do is know there's this other thing out there that you can still tap into the way hunting's been for eons on public land if you want to do that and i think there's an appetite for that and that's one of the reasons you know why backcountry hunters and anglers is resonating so much is that people aren't looking for the cheapest easiest way anymore it's like it's about that journey that gets you there so that challenge and that adventure like that's more of the story than you know that animal on the wall you know i want to i want to point out real quickly too when we're talking about um fencing up cervids it's a much bigger issue and again this is not the steve talking when we're talking about fencing up cervids it's a much bigger issue because i'm gonna say deer and elk running game farms we're not just talking about like oh is it ethical or not to kill these animals inside game farms you have tremendous disease transmission issues going on with these and proven cases where you have communicable diseases that are within domestic herds within caged herds that are living in very close proximity to one another have been exposed to all manner of things either escaping or transmitting the disease to deer and elk that can't help themselves but to come up and stick their nose through that fence and rub noses with the tame with the domestic ones 
and there's disease. It's not just an issue of like it's not a morality play. It's an issue of do we value our wild deer and elk? And is a guy's right to make a few bucks selling deer and elk greater than our right to have disease free herds? Disease free herds and it's also genetics, right? I mean, it's not about kind of if those animals are going to get out, it's like when, you know? And I remember cases of, of a guy in, uh, in Idaho, Rex Ramble, who had a big game farm and big winner, a couple fences go down. He's got Roosevelt elk now mixing with Rocky Mountain elk, like right there, like during the rut. And, 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 and the fishing game comes in, tries to shoot them from helicopters. He's hazing them back into the woods and so they can't be shot. I mean, it's just this ridiculous yeah. thing that, that yes, they're shooting them there, which we've talked about. Yes, there's that disease factor, but then there's also this, this huge, uh, thing about, um, passing on those genes, you know, and mixing kind of herds, which is a travesty to me. Yeah, it's the same issue. And we all agree on certain concepts here. Like if I live on a stream, we've basically agreed that I can't go and, and plow a few thousand pounds of manure into the stream on my property because it's always oh, my property. No, because that water flows downhill, dude. You're going to mess up the agricultural landscape and the fisheries and stuff on the next guy down the line's land. We've all agreed on that basic premise, right? Public resource. Yeah, like I can't have a bunch of holes in my gas tank underground next to your drinking water because you're going to be really pissed when you get, get groundwater contamination in your drinking water. And so to look at the fence issue, it's bigger than just like what somebody's doing on their own private land because again and again, it's been proven that it's not that way. That right. it's like we're talking about diseases and other stuff. And it's just like people have to wake up to the complexity of this stuff and realize that it's not just this constant battle of like you're my right to do this and you're right to do that. You know, it's so much bigger. Like what you do on private land affects public land and what you do with animals that are privately held affects publicly held animals yeah it's a it's a i feel like it's a pretty clear-cut issue but it's obviously very uh, uh convoluted and um and there's and part of that is because there's money at stake um there's a lot of money being made uh, yeah whether that's with the shooting or with the with you know just for the meat um and and breeding stock i guess and so I see it. I think it's something that, uh, that I think will evolve out of, to be honest. I think that, uh, the public awareness, uh, on the disease factor in particular, but also just kind of the ethics of it. I mean, people don't accept that. And when they, when, when people find out about it, they want to figure out how to do something about it. Yeah. And so I think this will be something that we won't be talking about in 25 years. I was just at a, um, you're familiar with Quality Deer Management Association? Yep. yep. There's a, offshoot of qdma and and if you haven't heard of qdma like qdma is the is largely to thank for um a movement now you know among private landholders i won't say larger they, they've been very influential instrumental among private landowners to strive toward managing white-tailed deer toward having for lack of a better term what we'll call like more natural population dynamics and white-tailed deer if you live in an area where you see 20, where you got 20 does for every buck, that's a manifestation of like shitty deer management of shooting all, but every buck that walks in front of you, you kill, you're not killing does. You wind up having zero bucks that are three and a half years old. The oldest of bucks gets two and a half and he gets shot. And it'd be like guys not wanting to shoot does, shooting every buck that walks in front of them and sort of the change in culture we've been experiencing in the last decade or longer of being more open to the harvest of does, trying to allow some bucks to reach like a natural reproductive age, like that's come out of QDMA. 
they speak largely to, to they've spoken largely to private landowners because private landowners ha- have more say in the the harvest rates that are going on on their land. An offshoot of that is the National Deer Alliance, which is a, a bunch of biologists and land managers coming together to look at deer issues. And I heard, and I don't think I'm wrong on this, that they're pushing for, they, they keep pushing for a ban on moving cervids across state lines. Not with an eye toward cramming it down the private man's throat, but for an eye of preventing diseases. Right. Which, I mean... From just inadvertently moving diseases from one end of the country to the other. Chronic wasting disease, which is all over now, is not a thing of this land it was brought here and it wasn't from deer swimming the ocean <laughs> I, I, I mean that's that's obviously a policy i think that makes a ton of sense for the protection of our wild herds and so you would think that that would be something that even um you know some of these uh, private deer owners would think of was a positive thing I saw an interview with a guy who's credited kind of largely credited with having spawned the deer white-tailed deer breeding thing. I think this guy in Pennsylvania. He really was, he, he's a dude that loved deer. Mm-hmm. Guy that loved deer. And um, eventually had one. And it's funny about like, what's funny about the deer farming and deer raising industry and, and how much money is there and selling like genetic lines and buck semen and stuff is, I've never heard anybody bring this up, but if you trace it all the way back, it had to have begun with a crime. Because you can't just go catch a deer and have it for yourself. With our model of conservation, deer are like public property. Right. So I always wonder, like, it's almost, I'm not saying it's like it's the statute of limitations is way run out, but it always, like, it always strikes me as being something that began with a wrong. Right. Some guys, like white-tailed deer, right? You know, some guy went out and said, you know what? I'm just going to make that mine. And then, from there, innocently enough, you know, it's perpetuated. We've gotten into this thing where deer have become like, for some people, it's not good enough that we have deer as like a national, as wildlife. It's like they got to turn it into something. And it's driven by many factors. And one of the biggest things it's driven by is the desire to shoot a gigantic buck. Right. Um, and what and you what these guys care about is just shooting a giant buck. They don't care if it's been drugged or what, you know. And uh, it, it's just sad when you think about that. It, at, at, at what cost that's going to come to our wildlife. But do you think? I mean, I feel like that's been a trend until like the last like five, ten years. Yeah, I think it's reached its apex. And now it's like people are like, nah, that's that's not okay. Yeah. So I think we're kind of reeling back. And that's why I say I think like in 25 years, we're probably not going to be having this conversation. I hope not. I hope you're right. Because I was at a like a, one of those big conventions recently. I won't name the one. I mean, you mm-hmm. can probably guess. And I kind of thought that like that stuff had faded out just because I wasn't seeing it. But I went to this convention, and you walk down the aisles and rows, and there were many, you know, in the dozens of booths that were, you know, these farms selling. And you look up at these heads that they have mounted, and you just like... Selling buck semen. Well, they're just... I don't know what they're selling. They're selling the hunt, hunt, the bucks, or whatever. But you look at these bucks, and you've never even seen anything like this. You know, like I didn't even know this stuff existed. And now here, here there was 20 booths at this show like selling this opportunity at, you know, one of these heads. And I yeah. mean, they're just like, 
you know, whatever. It's like an upside down stump, you know, going on top of this deer's head. And it's, it's, yeah, but I think it's that, there. that we are, like, I mean, when you when you brought up, like, TV and, like, they're trying to keep, like, that stuff out of the shots, you know, for a while they didn't really care. Oh, really? Yeah, well, I mean, you'd see you'd see fences and, I mean, same thing with, like, cordon feeders and stuff. Like, you'd see them in the shot. Yeah. And now I feel like they're not doing that as much anymore. And it's because about that experience of the hunt and, um, like, people, like, it cheapens that hunt, I mean, in a lot of people's eyes. And so I think, you know, we'll see. I mean, there's still, we're probably always going to be those guys that want that big rack and they don't care. I mean, I've seen videos of deer that are drugged that fall over and they have to prop them up with sticks and then a guy shoots them. Oh, and yeah, man. Does I've the grip that and stuff. grin and yeah. like whatever with them. You know, it's ridiculous. So there are always going to be those kind of people, but I feel like we're tending away from it, hopefully. I hope so. And I just hope for a say, like, if that's, if, you know, if that's what you get off on, great, man. But I don't want those practice. No, I shouldn't say great. If that's what you get off on and you want to do it in a way that's not, that doesn't have catastrophic Im- implications to wildlife health in, in the U.S., okay, but you better find a way to guarantee that those practices aren't like lighting sticks of dynamite underneath public wildlife. Yeah, I don't think there's a guarantee. I don't know. All right, let's change the subject. <laughs> I, I hate to harp on the negatives. What? Uh, Before we start a new subject, let's take a quick break. Did you know Rocket Money can cancel a subscription for you? They'll even alert you when there's been an increase in a subscription price and negotiate rates for you. I can see my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, Rocket Money can help me cancel it with just a few taps. You wouldn't believe how many people are paying for subscriptions they don't use. This happened to me. It's annoying. This helps you find it out and get rid of it. Well, Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions and monitors your spending and helps lower your bills so you can grow your savings. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. That's rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. The single most valuable tool I have for chasing turkeys next to my scatter gun is the Onyx Hunt app. If I'm hunting turkeys, I'm using Onyx. If I'm not hunting turkeys, I'm using Onyx. I'm always using Onyx. I live by that stuff. I can't tell you the number of birds this app has put me on by allowing me to easily find new areas to hunt. It's invaluable. I use it all the time. Even properties I know super well. And I'm at my buddy Bubbly Doug's house. I'm using Onyx, and I've hunted this place a million times. With their compass mode, I can pinpoint exactly on the map where a gobble rang out from and then figure out the perfect spot to set up. Meaning, if I'm sitting there, let's say I'm at Bubbly Doug's, and I'm in the navel, and I hear, pow, I'll like instinctively pull up bubbly doug's place on on x and i'll look at the topography and i'll be like oh that sucker must be over in that little opening over there waypoints also and the ability to share them okay comes in handy every spring whether that's revisiting old waypoints where i've been on birds before or sharing them to buddies to help put them on birds this app will help you find more turkeys on x hunt has a special offer for you too Use code MEATEATER to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com slash hunt. 
this turkey season. I want to tell you about an American-made success story and Black Buffalo's award-winning nicotine pouches. Black Buffalo was built by dippers with decades of smokeless tobacco use. Black Buffalo is all about the history and tradition of dip, but they understand the convenience and discretion modern-day consumers are looking for. Black Buffalo's nicotine pouches give you the versatility to consume discreetly, but keep the ritual with flavors dippers love. Mint, straight, and wintergreen, all proudly made right here in the USA. Tell them, Chili. The reason I like black buffalo pouches is, one, they're very discreet. And what I mean by that is I can throw one in and almost forget it's there. And I prefer the mint pouches. So if you're 21 or older, consume nicotine or tobacco and want to join the black buffalo herd, head over to blackbuffalo.com to learn more. You can order nicotine pouches online. They ship directly to most states or check out their store locator to purchase pouches at thousands of retail locations around the country. Black Buffalo Tobacco Alternative. Bold flavor, full pouches. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Black Buffalo products are intended for adults age 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco. Lane, when you look at the, the future of conservation, the future of public lands, tell me... Um, a handful of the things, a handful of trends that you think are detrimental to hunters and fishermen? Some things that are going on right now that, that we really need to be, as hunters and fishermen, that we should really be watching out for to in order to protect our rights? And two, like, uh, what are some of the things that you're most optimistic about that, that you see right now that, that, that are happening and are good and that we can hopefully keep continuing to be good? Yeah, I think the the biggest threat that I see right now, and this is nothing new, but it seems to resurface every ten or fifteen years, and that's the sale of public lands. And you know, they, it's 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 been guised in the transfer of public lands uh, to the states, but really the sale of is where it ultimately ends up. And that, to me, we can talk about all these other issues, and you know, we've talked about already today. Uh, what makes part of the West so special is all the public lands we have and like some of those last bastions of public lands in the East. You get rid of those public lands, which are, in my mind, the cornerstone of our hunting heritage here in the United States, which makes us different than every, everybody else. And you get rid of that, and we can have all sorts of conversations that we were just having that don't matter anymore because it's just, that's not, it's not, that's not the unique kind of American uh, experience that we've had. And, and so, you know, Right now, we're in the middle of, of, of you know, we have two presidential candidates that are calling for the sale of public lands. Um, Senator Cruz from Texas and uh, Rand Paul, which just this last week was in Nevada talking about it. And it's no longer... just like, dude, like, just dudes, urban dudes, man. They don't get it. Like, just, I think just like, like kind of like city slickers that just have no comprehension of the kind of stuff. Or, they just have no comprehension of Senator wildlife. Cruz is from Texas. How much public land is in Texas? Yeah, you know, and so, I mean, and when I say, you know, so it's becoming more mainstream. You know, I mean, it's uh, this is not something that's on the fringes. Um, you know, we've had a big movement here in the West that I think we've done a really good job beating back at the state level, even though at the state level there's no um, binding authority that they have at a state level. It's more about just kind of creating some a momentum for a federal action. But you know, when you had the this is getting into the weeds, but there was an amendment this last spring that Murkowski from Alaska brought forward that would create a fund to help facilitate the transfer and sale of public lands. 
Now, she said it was for a small piece open Alaska, but it was broadly written, so it was anywhere. 51 senators voted for that. Now, this isn't, like, those are, that's 51 senators. That's a, that's a big deal. And so, I, to me, a lot of people have said, oh, this is just kind of this noise that happens and it'll go away. Well, to me, that's not just noise. When you have 51 senators vote for it and you have two presidential candidates, one is a little bit more mainstream than the other. Um, but I was talking about this with my brother. Yeah. And he was like, I just, like, he was trying to, he's a BHA member, but I, he was like, I just, I try to understand the mindset of people who want to ditch public lands. Mm-hmm. And he said, is it that they like drive and look at a mountain and they're like, man, I just wish I couldn't go up into that mountain. I just wish it was owned by a billionaire. Like it can't, like he was being facetious. That can't be what they think. But what is it that? It's not being sold to them that way. But like, what is it that they like, like, what is it? What do they really feel? I know. I feel like I know what they're actually talking about. Like what I'm always interested in is what are the secret private conversations they have? I feel that I know what the secret private conversation is. Yeah. But what is really being said in the outward way about why it's beneficial to ditch public lands? So I think the private ones are like, you know, the, the money that's being made there, right? By they're not being rank and file aren't calling for this. It's like rich people. So that's the first one. Yeah, it's, I think a, it's, a ha- I think it's a hatred of government. It, but yeah, so it's, well, it's not even that. It's like a, um, our public lands aren't being managed, uh, in, a, in, in, in their eyes, like in a correct way. Yeah, and, and so in, they have in a, frustration. In an aggressively for-profit way. And so they have frustration. And so whether that's, you know, trying to take more trees, they're trying to do more mining, whatever that is, I think that's, that's that piece that people are frustrated with. Now, what they don't necessarily understand is that federal lands are managed for all of us. And so that means multiple use. And so that means ATV users, that means hunters, that means anglers, that means bird watchers, that means miners, that means loggers, that means grazers. And so is that complicated? Very complicated. Um, and, and how to all make that work? And we talked about the Clearwater Basin before. And that's, that's the reason that has come up is because federal management wasn't working for that area and they've tried to do something else, right? So I think we can agree that public land management, um, it could be improved. But at the same time, it's a pretty good system where everybody has a voice at the table. When it comes to the state, that's managed for one thing and that's for profit. And so like in, I mean, Colorado is a great example. State lands in Colorado that are open to hunting, the fishing game in Colorado has to lease those from the state to open those up to hunters. Yeah. That's ridiculous. Like, that's our, like, that should be their land. Yeah, right? if it's not leased, you can't even sleep on it. You yes. can't camp on it. And, like, in Montana, like, you can, I think, what, you can camp two days on, uh, on, on state land, you can camp 14 on National Forest without moving, right? And so, but that's all because of money. I mean, it's, and, and those lands are there to generate money. And so I think that's a big one. Um, and then, you know, if, if we have unfettered, kind of development like what kind of habitat and opportunity do you have on that land after that and and so this is again being bred out of frustration and part of who is bringing this forward are also the people that are cutting budgets for the forest service and so you know the forest has forest service has to do uh less or more with less right they have less money to keep roads open like a lot of roads that are closed are because they're not being maintained and that's because they haven't got the budget up at the federal level yeah that isn't because you know some environmental group came in and said, no, you can't you know, hunt in this spot anymore. We're going to shut down this road or whatever. It's because of like budgets have been cut. Yeah, because culverts get washed out and stuff like that becomes a liability. It's hard to maintain those roads in those kind of places. You're talking dirt roads and heavily eroded areas. Right. And so you shut them down. Yeah, and there's a lot of confusion at times about what exactly you got gated up for. Right. A lot of times it's just like simply liability. It's not safe to have 
from their perspective, they can't have people driving around on roads that like effectively don't exist. Right. You so know? I think I mean like it's 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 a little bit of frustration with public uh, the management of our public lands yeah. is where it's coming from, and that's how it's being sold to the public. Um, but ultimately, what's where what's at stake is is really money, and in the big money that's behind kind of these efforts is that oil and gas kind of extraction industry. And is there a total smoking gun there? Like you know, no. But I'm not. You know, we're not. I mean, I, I, it's pretty easy to figure out. Um, that this is much more organized this time, and like the American Lands Council or the American Legislative Exchange Council, based out of Utah. I mean, if that funding comes from large industry, and um, you know, and so it's not that hard to make that that step, I guess. Yeah, and they've gone after you guys. They've gone after you personally. They've gone after a lot of people in the conservation world as being like uh, these sort of secret sly. The green decoy. Yeah. The green decoy. And, and I think, you know, it was funny. The first time I heard about that, I was coming home from actually Bozeman. There was a hunting film tour here in Bozeman that we had worked. I was coming back to Missoula. Snow was just dumping. I had both hands on the wheel. And on my, fo- on my phone comes up this phone call from Louisiana. I did a lot of work down in Louisiana for a while. I'm like, I don't know if I really want to talk to him. I was like, God, I, but I love this guy. And I put an answer. He's like, dude, have you seen the green decoys? And I'm like, no. Like, tell me about them. Like, are these like, are they have all flocked heads? They flock bodies. Like, what are they? I was like, oh, you haven't seen. And that was the first time I found out about it. And at first, I would say um, that that bothered me that uh, somebody was coming after our organization and me personally about it. But the way I looked at it and the way I look at it now. Basically saying like, oh, those guys don't like to hunt and fish. They're fake. They're fake. They're guys who act like they like to hunt and fish. And I remember thinking at the same time, I'd be like, dude, I would love to take. A, a, a random sampling of BHA members. Yeah. And take a random sampling of whoever these guys regard to be real hunters and real conservationists and, and, and match them up toe to toe in a hunting contest. Dude, <laughs> it's like it would be we win hilar- every time. It would be hilarious. It was just, it was so outlandish to me because I've been, like, I know a lot of BHA members, been to BHA functions, be like, oh my, you're saying those guys don't actually like to hunt? Those guys like to hunt and fish more than anybody I know. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a way of life, not a pastime, right? That's, yeah, it's just fucking ridiculous. And like I, what I love thinking about it is like, so it's just the, the firm is, that's actually behind that is Berman and Associates. It's out in DC. It's a PR firm. They've been called Dr. Evil by 60 Minutes. Uh, New York Times did a big expose on them last year when Richard Berman got caught in an oil executive meeting talking about how he's going to use all these dirty tactics, uh, to, to fight folks. And, um, an executive pushed record on his phone because he didn't like, you know, he was talking about you can either win. Or you can either lose uh, being pretty or you can win being dirty. And like that's when he pushed record. And the guy didn't like it. Didn't like it. And so then he gave that to the New York Times. The New York Times blew it up. Yeah. And so there's actually a Will Coggin who works underneath him. Um, and he's this, this white, pasty lobbyist inside D.C. that I'm guessing has never set foot on public land. But I definitely know that my daughter, who's six years old, has had more blood on her hands than he ever will. Yeah. And so to call that fake, I mean, I think... You know, again, the reason they're calling us out is because we 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 look at this land and want to perpetuate these opportunities, and conservation is a big piece of that. Am I saying? Are we saying no more oil and gas development ever? No. Like we're talking about in a responsible fashion, right? And we have a long track record of doing that. But I think the reason this green decoys thing has come out is because of the success we're having talking to people. And so that's where at first I was frustrated and worried about kind of what that meant for us. And since then, uh, it's it's more like a badge of honor, right? Yeah. Like the reason they're coming after us is because we're being effective. And like they're, 
Like the other day, we the, the Dude, your voice is loud. Yeah, you know, it's being louder. They're trying to. Dude, I, I, I would tell you, I had a dozen people when that came out. I had a dozen people, fans of Meat Eater Show, write or on Twitter or whatever, come out and say like, you know, I don't, I don't know if I can keep supporting you because you guys support BHA and it's always got a link to this Green Decoys thing. Right. Every one of them I wrote to, and I said I invite you to do two things: one, look into who made that. Okay, and two, go to BHA's website or call BHA, and then you tell me one policy issue that they have that you don't agree with. Like, I don't want to talk about who there did what when, but look at as an organization, you find one thing that you want to come and tell me is bad policy for hunters and fishermen, and then let me know what one you think. I never heard back from a single one of those guys. Yep. I th- and, and I think because say look at like, it's not like a mysterious group. No, it's a nonprofit. No, no. We I mean all our uh, where we get our money is all up online. Uh, like you know all the policies that we have is up online. I mean again I'm I think um, that there there's some shadows there. I mean these, these organizations that's an organization of like two that's out in D.C. like the Environmental Policy Alliance or whatever they're called now. Um, and so and they don't disclose where their money comes from. And it's just this, like some of the things that they're accusing us of are, are ridiculous. And, um, when I look at it again, I mean, we've gotten, you know, this will come up on a blog, right? And, and, and partly what I think they're trying to do is trying to waste our time a little bit, right? Like, yeah. so they get out and so then we have to deal with it. Well, we'll come up on a blog. And what's been great is that we don't really interact with that. There's other people, either members or people that, that look into it. And so then that conversation happens. We get members out of that. We've gotten life members out of that, which is a great thing. Like no press is bad press, right? And I think what it fuels is it fuels the people that already kind of want to think that way, like this conspiracy that, oh, you know, like these guys are, you know, acting on behalf of this anti-hunting, green decoy, what, you know, green kind of whatever. And so that fuels their fire. For the people in the middle that investigated a little bit or are asked to investigate it and they look at it, they're like, oh, well, these guys are like kind of, Share a lot of the same values I do. Maybe I'm going to become a member. Yeah. And then on the other side, you know, they did a, they did that video of me right before the shot show this year. And they sent it out to all my corporate partners. And so I get to the shot show and I'm, you know, a little bit nervous about how this is going to, you know, how they're going to react to this. And two, like an organization or a corporation that we worked with, they were like, we saw it. We think it's hilarious that they're actually doing it. You must be kicking, you know, major ass. And then three, like we want to double down with you and do more with well, you. Right. And so it's like, you know, to me, like it's backfiring. And, you know, I mean, I, we just had something pop up around the Clean Water Act. The administration comes out, clarifies some rules on the waters of the U.S. Yeah. That protect. For headwaters. For headwaters and, marshes, and, and, yeah. and isolated wetlands. We come out with Trout Unlimited and TRCP and say, thank you for doing this. And then they come out right after that and say, hey, by the way, these guys aren't your friends. I'm like, okay, so the prairie potholes in North Dakota where they're making all the ducks, you don't want to protect that? Like, that's the duck factory. Like, that's the duck factory. And like, here's a, you know, something that's going to help protect those lands. Like, tell me how that's anti-hunting. And it's not. And then, you know, it gets down to clean water. Like, everybody drinks clean water. I don't care if you shoot ducks or not. But those, you know, marshes are important to all of us. And so... Like it's it's comical a little bit their tactics, uh, but uh, it is something, and, and and it comes out of this this effort that um and I, that I believe you know on this public lands effort for sure, and that they're trying to they're trying to snake oil sell this thing, and they're using tactics to try to cut down people that are trying to make sure that we keep it in public hands. What's funny is now we've all like it's funny like Theodore Roosevelt, okay, mm-hmm. has been deified, right? I mean. He's everybody's angel, right? He's one of those guys that everyone from all persuasions wants to align themselves with 
Theodore Roosevelt. We just agreed that he was a great guy. Sure. I would love to go, I, I don't know why I haven't done this, but to go find the rhetoric that was used to attack Theodore Roosevelt when he was trying to create a public land system, national forest system, to use the rhetoric that was used to attack him on doing something that we now universally agree as one of the greatest achievements of American politics. It, they were saying the same stuff then that they're saying now. Yeah. I mean, it was senators, Western senators from Idaho and Montana that ultimately made it so he couldn't declare national forest anymore when he did the, when he did the midnight forest. And so, and the reason they, they did it is because they were kind of the timber barons of the time and they didn't think that they were going to be able to, you know, take as much timber that they wanted off of those national forests. So have they been able to continue to, to, to log on those forests? Yes. Um, and, and so I, I think you're right. I mean, the rhetoric, it just changes, you know, I mean, the sagebrush rebellion, then you had Congressman Pombo in 2005 that wanted to sell off public lands to pay off the national debt. Like it seems to come up every 10 or 15 years and the language never changes, just different players. And at this point, um, I think it's, it's, it's been more organized and more funded this this go around. Yeah, and 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 I think that's partly because people are frustrated with the government in general, right? I mean, the federal government is just you know, no matter what you talk about, but when you talk about public lands and staying in public hands, like that still is like a seventy percent. Like people want that to stay, but there's this frustration with the public or with the federal government. I think they're capitalizing on that. One thing I one thing I, I don't really understand why that people have such a hard time grasping is I don't think that all of our public lands should need to answer for themselves at all times in an economic way. Mm -hmm. Like anyone who sort of manages their own money, manages their properties, manages things at times you just, you, you hang on to things for the future. You know, if you look now at some of the great treasures that we've created, public land treasures, we created some of the great things we've set aside, we hold many more of those in our pocket right now that if they're preserved will be as valued by future generations and will be as valuable as the relative nature of landscapes change. We will continue to develop more, create more, build more roads, shrink more habitat. As we do that, we are just going to increase the value of the lands that we haven't done. Agreed. They will become like... Many more Nat Yellowstone National Park type things, you know, as the contrast increases, increases between wilderness and civilization. And when people now sit down and well-meaning people and people I support sit down, they're always trying to demonstrate the economic footprint of hunting and fishing, justifying it through the economic footprint. I want him like, sure, it, it, let's use that. Let's use that that justification about our humongous economic input from license purchases, travel, hiring outfitters, all this kind of stuff, all the money we generate and jobs we create and revenue we generate. Why not talk about that? What makes me leery about it is to be like, oh, so it's only justifiable if I can prove it in present day, it's, it's value in present day dollars. Like I need to justify hunting or justify my right to have clean water and air through the economics I can't just justify it through something that's bigger and more valuable, like more spiritual in nature than just trying to tell you in dollars what hunting and fishing is worth. 
You know, I don't need to justify the existence of my three children and based on how much revenue they're creating for me. Right. Right. It can just be that. No, it's like it's beyond money. They're precious. It's like they're the things that I care about most. No one says, yeah, well, show me how they're making money. No, in fact, they're costing me tons of money. Does that make me love them less? In a weird way, it makes me love them more. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, why can't we talk about public lands in that way? Mm-hmm. You know, instead of having to sort of justify their existence based on, like, how many jobs did it create today? Aldo Leopold, when he wrote San Colony Almanac, he has this line there where he talks about Leopold, like the father of, one of the many fathers of modern conservation. He talks about we've become, like, uh, economic hypochondriacs where we're so worried about our financial health that we're incapable of being healthy. You know? I don't see that it's that bad to have some things that maybe cost us a little money or don't generate a lot of money because we're holding them in perpetuity with the good faith, as demonstrated through many other landscape projects, that they will continue to be of tremendous, incalculable value in the future. That's what, National forest lands, that's, that's state you, forest lands. That's what uniquely makes us America, right? Like, I mean, we are so different because of what you're describing. And I, I mean, I think the economic arm, argument comes up, and it's, I think it's an important one because it's, uh, it's, it resonates out in Washington, D.C., where a lot of these policies are made. And when you think about the, you know, adding the outdoor uh, recreation industry into that piece, when you're talking about $646 billion, that's, that's a big number that's sustainable. And so for some folks that don't get the intrinsic values that you're talking about, yeah. the only thing that they can think about is dollars and cents. You have to do it. But I just like, it may, you have to do it. I support doing it, but at the same time, it makes me a little uneasy. Oh, yeah. like, so what are we exactly are we saying? Did I have to look at, I like to fish catfish, you know? Do I have to like look at a catfish and be like, what have you done for the economy today? Right. You know? I just don't know that I need to hold, I don't need, I don't know that the catfish needs to support that. <laughs> that burden on his shoulders or on his dorsal fin, man. But I think when you do talk about it in that kind of that that value set that you're talking about, like people get that piece. I mean that that whole Ken Burns piece, you know, about national parks. Like people are proud of that we have national parks, and it's that uniquely American thing. And so we need to talk about it more in the way that you just talked about it, um, because I think it resonates. And and you know, and if I'm if I'm thinking about you know the survival of these public lands, that's a big piece of it. All right, how long we got? How, how long we been talking? Yeah, one twenty. All right, Lane. Concluding thoughts. Uh, concluding thoughts. Um, I think that. Oh, it would be nice if you want to before you conclude yeah. thought, or you can use it as your concluding thought. Yeah. But the pre- prior question oh. to this was positive things. Yeah, yeah, yeah what, what's yeah, what's like? Uh, yeah. What's what's got you excited right so now? So my glass is always half full, like right. You know, I, mean, I think that's the way I grew up, and that there's always opportunities. And and so I think when you look at you know the hunting and fishing numbers that just went up, and the reasons they went up is because people um, uh, hunt and fish more, and when the economy's down, so those numbers went up. But then you have this new kind of like foodie kind of movement that's helped drive that, and then women in hunting. And I feel like we've been. A group of, I and mean, I'm 40 years old now, so maybe I am one of these old white men, right? But hunting has been. Yeah, I, old, I'm 41, so I've been one for two years. Okay. Yanni, Yanni's not one yet. All right, well, look forward to it, buddy. 
Um, <laughs> He's a young white man. But hunter. it's been like this old white man kind of sport, right? And and is is and and now you see uh, uh, people getting into it, you know, through the foodie movement, or more and more women. That's women talking to women rather than guys going, "Hey, you should come out and you know hunt with me and do it that once, and then call yourself a hunter." Like it's real. Like these are real women that are going out and wanting to do this as a lifestyle. And 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 so that to me. Um, gives me hope that uh that that hunting continues to stay in a mainstream kind of way and that conservation kind of fabric that's been woven through the last 150 years that's been driven by hunters helps carry that into the future and you know i'm also i mentioned the outdoor industry a little bit ago i feel like they're starting to realize um that uh, not only are they a huge economic driver but they have a huge stake in our public lands and that they need more of a voice and and so i how they do that there's many different ways for them to do that part of it's financially but i feel like those groups those new groups of like foodies and women and kind of you know kayakers and mountain bikers that aren't just 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 using the outdoors but actually going to you know give back that gives me uh uh i think um gives me hope for the future and hope for like my kids right like and that they they're, they're going to have a place to defend right and that i feel like you and i are here right now and we're, you know, defending the legacy that was handed off to us, but it's for this short amount of time. And then our job is to pass it on to the next generation to help fight for that, right? Like, like that's all we're doing is we're passing that on to, so that they have something to fight for because they will have to fight for it. Yeah. But we have to, we have to make sure that uh, one, it's there for them, and one, that they have something inside of them that actually uh, makes them want to do that. And you know, I know. You know, I mean, I'm, I know that you're doing this with your kids and I'm doing it with mine, is that they're getting engaged in the outdoors from the very beginning. It's just something that they're going to be a part of. But, you know, hopefully that they're the next leaders and that they're, they're creating more opportunities for other people. And for me, I think that we're going there. Um, the threats are dire, uh, but they've always been dire. It's just our time right now to do our part to make sure that we pass it on to the next generation. And, um, you know, with things like new technology, like this podcast, I mean, you're reaching more people that way, right? And you're reaching hopefully different audiences than just that old white man and nothing against the old white man. I'm one of them now. Uh, and they have a lot to contribute to conservation and to this kind of hunting and fishing legacy. Um, but if we are just so looking inward, uh, we're not, that's not going to perpetuate into the future. And then you lose this thing that you just talked about that is uniquely American, which are these public lands that have these values that are hard to describe, but we all know it because it makes us, you know, it makes us feel proud of who we are. Yeah. I'm not nervous about exposure, man. I know that like the way to get people to want to fight for what they have is to show them what they have. Yeah. You know, I've traveled a lot to, you know, a lot of different countries and you get into a lot of areas where the disconnect between people and their landscape just becomes so severe because they're so shut out by, you know, difficulty in travel, economic considerations, where when they're talking about that mountain range off in the distance or that marsh off in the distance, it just has no, they just never picture how it might possibly relate to their own well-being. You know, I, I think that, yeah, you've got to show people what they have. Yeah. If we continue to do that, you know, then we got a bright future. If not, it's going to look way different, and I don't want to think about it that way. Yanni, concluding thoughts? Um. I'm guilty of it. I'm gonna throw myself under the bus here because I'm one of those guys who's like just pays my was it 35 bucks annually. I get my journal, I get my sticker, put it on my Nalgene bottle, put it on my truck. But I need. I feel like everybody should do a little bit more. I need to do a little bit more. I'm gonna talk to Land when we're done here and, and see how I can actually put my boots on the ground. But 
I feel like a little bit of a call to action. Like everybody should do just a little bit more than just paying their 35 bucks. And maybe you could speak to that just, you know, in a couple sentences of just like, what's it? Just show up at the chapter meeting? Is that where to start? Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, we have chapters all over this country. There's 17 chapters um, that are mostly based in the West, but I've talked about the ones in the East. And so it's getting engaged with those chapters. And, you know, I mean, there's all ways to, to engage, you know, whether that's helping us with fundraising events and membership events, all the way to showing up at your, uh, at the district ranger's office and talking to him about, you know, ATV abuse in a certain area and how can we help curtail that. Um, and so there's different ways to get engaged. And I would say, that the only reason I've already said it, the only reason we have what we have today is because people have stepped up. And I think, you know, paying the $25, um, you know, for a membership a year, that's a great way to step up. That's just the first piece. And that next piece is that, you know, the people, people that step up, um, make a difference, right? And can you still get that, uh, Kimber 45 ACP for joining <laughs> Lifetime? You can. Uh, you can get the ACP. That's, that's a sweet deal, dude. ACP, if you become a, uh, it's a $1,500 life membership and you get that, that, yeah, gun, you get a 45 ACP, which is like $1,100 gun. So it doesn't uh, make any sense. You guys are able to do that. Um, well, we, we have a good relationship <laughs> with Kimber and then it's, uh, it's also a way, you know, that we create awareness for BHA I and mean, we gave away 76 guns last year. Are you serious? Is that right? Right. Between from the that, two, between the micro uh, carry that 380, then the ACP, and then the uh, mountain ascent, and that mountain ascent is just like unbelievable. If I had some money, I'd buy that right now. But no, I, mean, <laughs> I, I think it's it's stepping up, right? I mean, you're asking about it, yeah. and I think that um, if you're complaining and you're not doing anything, then stop complaining. Like you got to do something, and right. and it's about that's that's the way America has been built. That's the way we're building our organization, and it's you know those who step up uh, actually get things done. Yeah, I think it would have mattered like. Look at what is the thing, like, what are the things you care about most in life? Yeah. You know, I take all kinds of measures to make sure that, that, you know, family, right, is taken care of in a multi-generational sense. Like, I care about that. Okay, I'm willing to make sure the deck is taken care of. I care about my vegetable garden. I look to make sure my vegetable garden is taken care of. It's like, I care about hunting and fishing. You need to look and make sure your hunting and fishing is taken care of. It's just not going to happen on its own, dude. It just don't. It's not going to happen on its own. And also, I think people think it's daunting, right? Like, oh, I just, my voice doesn't count or like, I just don't know how to do things. We can help you do that. And, you know, again, like showing up to that meeting, um, you know, and with your district ranger, like he's hearing from all sorts of different people, but that one, I mean, we had some people working on the Bitterroot travel plan, right? And like our local chapter was working on that. The, their voice and talking about elk security versus a voice that's saying open up all roads and unfettered like ATV access everywhere. Those two voices then come together where they make a decision. Without that voice over here, we don't make it back in the middle. Yeah. Right? And so it's like your voice does count. And, uh, and so, yeah, I mean, I'm, we'll talk more about how you can get engaged. Uh, but you know, we're, we're young and we're growing and, and we've, we've built this organization on word of mouth and we're starting to get more opportunities like this to do bigger word of mouth. Right. And, uh, but we're resonating. We're resonating for a reason, and that's because uh, people see us focusing on public land, which is this asset that we all have. That everybody has. Yeah. Was that your concluding thought? Yeah. You know, this is kind of like mine. This is kind of my concluding thought. <laughs> a lot of times, I get like we get a lot. We field a lot of emails of people who say, like, "Man, I, you know, my dad didn't grow up hunting. You know, I was never brought up around it. I really want to start hunting, but it's like so daunting." Like, I don't know anybody that hunts. I tell them often. I'm like, I'm, I shouldn't even be telling you this, Land. I'll say, you know what you ought to do, really? Join a group, uh, like, join a group like BHA and start going there and, and pitch in. 
because you're going to wind up being hooked up with the, the most hunting and fishingest guys around, you know? Because, mm-hmm. like, I've met many BHA members, and they are, like, guys that live the life. Right. Go to those places and become, like, a teammate there and pitch in there and do it that way and just worm your way in to, like, a hunting and fishing culture in order to start, like, untapping the vast wealth of knowledge that your members have about accessible hunting and fishing that anyone with a, with a pair of boots can get involved in. Hopefully you want that kind of member. We totally want that kind of member. I mean, <laughs> we do. We do. I mean, and I, and I, like we do a, a series called Backcountry College. And in that, college, in that like, online kind of video series, like, we teach skills. And I don't know how many comments come in there that like, hey, I've, I've never been hunting, but this is like actually making me feel like, you know, that I have some skills. Now, are we doing all the skills and does that take place of anything that happens on the ground? No. But I think having like people that come into hunting later sometimes are even more, uh, passionate about it and like appreciative of yeah. what it actually is because they didn't grow up like you and I did, like where it's just kind of a way of life, right? But when they come in, it's like new, and a lot of times they're in their late 20s, early 30s. They have a little bit of means, and um, and they can dive right into it. And and to them, they, they see the rewards that we do all the time, but it's so new to them. It's so exciting to them. And so they get, you know, they're almost even more passionate. And so yeah. I think, you know, please continue to do that. I mean, anytime you're going to, you know, help us, like, push membership, please do that. I used to shovel manure and throw hay bales in exchange for hunting permission. Yeah. I didn't even know what I was doing. My my dad had farmed me and my brothers out to shovel manure and throw hay bales for hunting for his hunting permissions. <laughs> it's a reason to have kids, right? Yeah. So now I'm like, <laughs> yeah, man. Tie into like if you you look at the what look at the mission of the organization. Tie into the organization. Hang out and like it's just inevitable because like good people get involved in conversation or in conservation. Good people get involved. People who care about the future, who care about other people. Right, who want the world to be better than they left it? Those are the people who are involved in these organizations. That's also the kind of person that's going to take you under their wing and show you some things when they realize that you're aligned in the same way. I don't think you need to become like an expert hunter and fisherman in order to be involved in conservation. And I'll tell you what, we have this semantic thing in the U.S. where we got like environmentalism and conservation, and it's like in some ways we view these two things as being different. I think that if we're going to take like sort of the garden variety acceptance of, of environmentalism being somehow like preservation and conservation being sort of like this idea of environmental protection open to the idea of us extracting renewable resources of fish and game. The conservation movement in this country right now, this is a bold statement, but the conservation movement in this country right now is far more effective and far more powerful than the environmental movement because they reach across the aisles. I mean, I think that conservation is doing more on the ground stuff than than an outfit that might build that that might use these like semantical terms. I think if you want to be a powerful player in supporting the kind of things you care about, I would look at the conservation movement. And you can start conservation without knowing shit about hunting and fishing. Agreed. Uh, the only thing I would say there is one of the reasons why the conservation is being so successful is because there's that like far right flank over here, and there's that far left flank with environmental over here right and so there's that opportunity to try to make that space in the middle yeah and which you know i've had conversations with uh, my mom who has been involved in this kind of stuff for a long time about this exact thing is that if that if that right flank of just 
unfettered extraction wasn't there. And that left flank of this kind of like, leave it all alone, don't ever touch it again wasn't don't there. Don't even hunt it, don't fish it, don't, where don't, are we don't even look in, at it. Yeah, where are we going to be in the middle? Like, what if you, like, what if that middle was, you know, farther over to the right? What if that middle was farther over to the left, right? Like, it's, there is that middle for a reason. And so, do they play a role? I think so. But is where is stuff getting done? It's conservation. Yeah. All right, that was my concluding thought. Thanks for listening in. Give a good look. Um, don't just take my word for it, man. It's a be it, you're a registered nonprofit. By law, a registered nonprofit needs to be transparent. Go look at what BHA's doing, and then come tell me if you got a problem with it, and I will explain how you're wrong. Um, thanks for tuning in, Land. Great to be here. All right, All right guys, take it easy. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without your essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. Man, I was just in Hawaii and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie with me. And here's the deal. We're in and out of the water all the time, getting in to go spearfishing, getting out, taking the kids to the beach. I'm not going to mess around all day putting sunscreen on then having to get washed off. I just run a hoodie. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. Montana Casting Company is a performance fly rod and reel company based right here in our capital, Helena, Montana. Each model of fly rod is a tribute to Montana's rugged beauty and adventurous spirit. Their rods capture the look, feel, and craftsmanship of a custom-built fly rod. Scott personally calls every customer who buys one of his rods. Head to MontanaCastingCo.com and use code MEATEATER20 at checkout for a one-time 20% off discount.